Hi, I'm Dr. Gil Wilshire. I'm a board-certified physician, surgeon, and reproductive endocrinologist. Welcome to my series of podcasts where we discuss medical matters that matter to you. I'll be interviewing top experts in their fields, and we'll also be delving into fascinating backstories from deep within the world of medicine. So, I'm confident you'll find the information in these podcasts valuable, and they will assist you on your journey to optimum health. Hi, this is Dr. Gil Wilshire, and this is The Dr. Gil Show. This is where we talk about medical matters that matter to you. And remember, you can trust me because I'm a doctor. <laughs> right. <laughs> Today, our guest is Dr. Ben Gerber. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you. What a, pleasure it, is. What a pleasure it is to have you here today. Ben is a general surgeon. He's newly on staff at Boone Hospital, where I work, and I've struck up a friendship with him, and I've really enjoyed his stories, his company, and his insight, and the talents you've brought to Boone Hospital. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, Ben, when did you know you wanted to be a doctor? Ooh, that's a good question. <clears throat> to go back, and were you a child? Did you know no, way back then? Um, I, I actively rejected the idea of being a doctor for a while. Um, so when I was in college, I was um, taking a lot of math. And, uh, I was a math and biochemistry double major, and my faculty advisor at the time suggested I consider medicine, and I flatly was like, no way. Am I going to work that hard? No. -uh. Uh -huh. I completely rejected the idea of medicine altogether. And I had this goal at the time of being a scientist. So I wanted to work in a laboratory. And um, you know, I remember that when I was a, I think I was a junior in high school, or maybe a senior, one or the other. And it was sort of in that phase where people are like, so what do you want to do with your life kind of right. questions that are getting asked a lot. And you're like, I don't know. Um, I read this really interesting article in National Geographic about how insulin was invented. And it has a bunch of interesting history, but then the, the real thing that, that changed everything was the biochemists who isolated the gene for human insulin and then were able to figure out a, a model of growing it in certain types of cell lines, which would produce the functional hormone, and it could be produced in a laboratory. Because up until that point, the hormone had to be isolated out of cadavers. And it was extremely expensive, and really very few people could get it, and most people who had diabetes would just die. Um, and when they created this uh, possibility of making it in a laboratory, you know, it essentially made it available to lots of people to be able to get this medicine. And that excited you. And that, I thought that, that was science. cool. Yeah, it yeah is that cool. you could use cool. science to like really help people, you know, and that, that people who are suffering with a problem could be, you know, through the application of your intellect and understanding of medicine or science, you could like help people. And, and I, anyway, that was really inspiring to me. So then when I was a you know high school kid and then in my, my college years, I really wanted to do that. Um, and where did you go to college? I went to Knox College. So it's a little liberal arts college in Galesburg, Illinois. In Illinois. Okay. Yeah. So you're undergrad, you like the science, then did you go to grad school? So I didn't go to grad school. I, I did... 
don't know exactly why, honestly, in retrospect, it was a really hectic year, my senior year, and I just didn't put together the details for what I wanted to do for a grad school application process. And I also wanted a little bit of experience of actually being in a laboratory full time uh -huh. before I decided that that was like where I was going to go. So I ended up deciding to take a job and I worked at Wash U in laboratories at Wash U. Okay, so you were at a university, but as, as a... As a lab tech. As, as a lab tech. Okay, so it's a real, a real job. Working as, you know, I, I had benefits and a salary, you know, a sure. salary and all that kind of crap. Makes sense. And, um, and I worked for Irv Boim for two years, and then I worked for um, Gene Nerbone for another five years uh, at WashU. Seven years at yeah. WashU. So as a lab tech, yeah. Right. And eventually, as I went through all of that and did it for a number of years, it was really, I don't know, it cert hit certain buttons for me because there's the most of the years I spent doing this um, – patch clamping work, which is basically where you take you know, neurons out of a mouse brain and you have to grow them in a culture and then you take these extremely microscopic electrodes and touch the surface of the cell and then you basically gain access to that cell electrically. You can measure how it behaves under, and then you drip little chemicals on it and you yeah. do all these different stuff under a microscope and see, you know, since these are neurons, they have action potential waveforms and we can see what they shape like and, and then in the, in the model that we had, there were certain... Gene Nerbone had created several um, knockout mice where genes of specific kinds were destroyed, so they were okay. gone. And then we were, she was searching for ways to understand how they contributed to the waveforms of the mice. So you're doing this base, very exciting yeah. basic science, and you could have done that the rest of your I life. Could have. It became clear to me that, that working for months and months on figure four wasn't really exciting. It wasn't hitting my buttons and wasn't going to mean uh -huh. i wasn't going to be the guy who was going to stay up really late and read more journal articles and apply for grants and get grant money and then you know it just wasn't the I rat needed. race of grant money so I, was there a moment where you said hey i'd rather be a doctor so a, a medical doctor one of the things that, that happened was was as i was sort of been in Jean's lab for a number of years she suggested i consider it and i was kind of like well maybe md phd maybe. She have you come back yeah, I don't know. High power double doctor. We'll see. See, no. For specific reasons, if you're going to do MD PhD, you have to be like a perfect student. Like those people are all like four point perfect, like GPA every. I mean, they don't take anybody who has even the slightest, you know, inaccuracy really? on their okay. credentials. So that was out of the question for me. But I did think that I wanted to do anyway. So she suggested that I consider medicine, and then I found a couple of different doctors that let me shadow them for a while. I thought it was interesting. I applied to medical school. I think I applied to like 50 medical schools. Oh my goodness. And I got rejected by all of them. Oh, so first shot around. All of them. Completely. And so you did the Abe Lincoln. You just suited up and showed up and did it again. I spent a year doing night school and getting more recent classes with, you know, good grades because it had been a number of years I'd been out of school, right? I see. Okay. Um, right, and right. I, I, asked, quantity. I asked for advice from the people, you know, and the advisors uh, at the medical schools basically told me that part of the issue was that I'd been out of school for so long. Sure. Um, and then I did a lot of volunteering work with local, like, free health clinics and stuff to sort of have credentials of being involved in medicine to some extent instead okay. of just science. Um, and then I reapplied to a much smaller number of schools, but I got in. And by then, I was a Missouri state resident for a number of years, so I got and went to Mizzou. So you went to University of Missouri for medical school. That's right. And in medical school, did you start to like one specialty over the other? Did surgery kind of grab you somewhere? Ooh. So this is another one of these sorts of things where um, 
when I remember vividly being in the, so during medical school, for those who aren't aware of it, your, your first two years are very academic where you're like in lectures almost all the time. And sure. then your third year is your clinical rotations. And then your fourth year is sort of this sort of additional clinical work, but you're really about getting into medical school is what the right. fourth year is about. I mean, or sorry, getting into residency. residency. Um, so, you know, it's all about polishing your GPA and your, your, letters of recommendation and, you know, whatever else on your resume necessary so that you can be a great candidate to get a match. Okay. So during my first two years of med school, it was sort of routine, but towards the end of it, we were getting ready to sign up our, for our clinicals. And I vividly remember that we had an infectious disease doctor, um, at, on faculty at MU and he gave this talk. He was sort of talking about how you consider what kind of medicine you want to be in. And he was talking about how like, uh, there were two main schools of doctors. There were the doctors who do things to people and then the right. doctors who think. Okay. You know, and I was kind of like, oh, well, I kind of figure I, I kind of like to think. I, I ought to be one of these thinking type doctors. Right, with a so, bow tie. <laughs> right. Right, right. So I, I, I was completely expecting to go into my third year and plan my third year out to be, you know, a great experience and go into internal medicine. That was my okay. goal. You know, I was going okay. to go into internal medicine. And uh, I did, you know, all this stuff and went through. And I had position surgery at like, as like the last rotation, the second to right, last right, right. rotation. Right, right, right. The one you're not going to do. That I'm not going to do, right? right. Um, and it was the second to last rotation of the year. It was like surgery, then OB. I don't remember what the, all of them were in order, but I was pretty yeah. sure I wasn't going to do OB. And I, I was um, pretty sure I wasn't going to do surgery. Um, and so those were kind of at the end of the line. And, um, you know, I, the surgery was, I mean, it was kind of crazy. It's almost a blur as a student because you wake up at like four in the morning. You're Not there. Much sleep. You're there before the surgery residents start their rounds because you have to right. prepare the list and then right. you get all the charts ready. I mean, this was back in the days where they still had paper charts. They just started to transition to electronic medical records. So you had to like go get the charts and like bring them to this cart and then push it around with everybody and they would Guess sign the stuff. And, on, uh, yeah. Yeah. They had x rays on the computer. But, we had a bunch of this stuff that we had to there do. Like, film. When I'm so old, yeah. they were on big films. <laughs> right. So uh, we had jobs to do. And then like the, and we were a critical part of how the team functioned. And uh -huh. then we were, then you were in the OR and you would do stuff in the OR. And Did that click? What clicked for you, Ben? Well, for me, I mean, like it was, it was being, doing stuff in the OR was, was one of these sorts of things where like, like hours could go by and I wouldn't even realize that it happens. Right. You know, it's one of these sorts of you things where you would get done with surgery and you'd be like, man, I really have to pee, you know, cause it's right, been right, right. five yeah. hours. The last thing that you're not even peeing down your leg, right. although you might've. Yeah. You know, now had you been good with your hands up until then? Yeah. Did you I know? Mean, so you'd been good with your hands for I mean, your whole life. Probably maybe as an electrophysiologist, that was something that was really fundamental. You know, fine motor skills is always something that's been something that, I found, and, and the other thing that really sort of was interesting to me about surgery was that surgery has a characteristic to it where it really makes a difference if you, in between the, the moderate and excellence, like, you see what I mean? Like, they're virtually every case, if you sew it, okay, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. Right. But then if you sew it perfectly yeah. every time, yeah. it's always better. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and like, it's very and satisfying. It's very yeah. satisfying to do something that, that requires a certain degree of precision and to be able to do yeah. it well and, and have that be something that makes a difference. Yeah. Because you know, if you're sewing on a button, 
and you, you sew it on so that it sticks on their shirt, that's all that matters, right? It doesn't matter if the stitches are like, you know, perfect. But I feel like when you're, when you're stitching up fascia, if you're sloppy and you sort of grab the peritoneum and a bunch of fat in there too, you're far more likely that that patient's going to get a hernia, right? right? And that, that there's going to be an outcome that change as a consequence of the sloppy method. So, so, so the precision and the excellence really uh, suited you. It does. Yeah. yeah, now I ended up doing, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon, so I did surgery earlier in my third year. And I don't want to get into too many details, but they were tremendous assholes, these people. They were brutal. The residents were just brutalized. Then I had OBGYN the second half of the year, and I got into it. And it was like, whoa, they're gentlemen, they're polite, they're doing great surgeries. And when I, so I ended up gravitating that, yeah, sure. that direction. So it, it kind of found me, but I knew I was going to do some type of surgery. So you got a surgery residency at a medical school. Where was that? So I went, did my internship at uh, Vidant Medical Center. It was at, they, at the time, they called themselves ECU, uh, but they've changed names. In what then. state? In Greenville, North Carolina. North Carolina. <laughs> was that like a rotating internship or surgery internship? So that was a, that was a prelim year. Um, so I, was, uh, I didn't do very well in the match. Like my whole medical career, if you, if you think about it, it's been like problem after problem. So anyway, um, you know, I didn't get into medical school my first time around, and I, I didn't get into surgery my first time around either. Um, I got, and I, I had to scramble. It was the last year they actually did the old scramble. So this was crazy. So the scramble right. back in this time was when, if you didn't match, you would get this, you know, notification, like maybe it was like three days before match day that right. you didn't match. And then you, the day before match day, you would get a email at like 5.30 in the morning that listed uh, this like huge PDF with like 100 pages that listed every residency training program in the country. And which ones were all all different, and which ones had openings left? Hey, and then did, you does basically your advisor help you too. You well, it was the residency training program director at MU at the time, and uh, she, you know, basically gave me this tiny little office, and it had like a phone and a computer <laughs> for you to get on your email, and <laughs> and, and you just called everybody. Yeah, and, it's and it a was scramble. like, who do you scramble. get through to first? And they wanted you to send you their application, and you had to get it. And the fax machines were all backed up because everybody's right. sending like, these these applications are fifty page documents, right? Oh. So they're backed up, and they, like, and you're like pulling your hair out, and then they're trying to decide. So I got lucky because. Um, ECU was one of the places I had applied for, but then, and they had ranked me, but I was not ranked high enough to actually match. So they right. took me on as a prelim and I was really bummed out because as a prelim, you really have no commitment that you're going to like continue training any further beyond the first year. Right. So you had essentially redo the match all over again and have, instead of five years of surgery residency, and actually, you're going to usually not get into a second year slot. You're going to get into a first year slot right. when you reapply. So you're six years of residency. And I'm already been in college, you know, out of college for seven years before I went right. to med school. Like, I'm already an older guy. Right. So anyway, I got in at ECU and I really worked my butt off for those guys. Um, and, and they appreciated it. So and they appreciated a, it. Yeah. So this is a, a, a rotating internship year. Right. Then, so got you into residency for surgery. I, they did. And, that was a stroke. I mean, literally like the hand of God um, because um, it was a stroke of luck. Usually uh, when people match into surgery residency, there are very few that drop out anymore. Like back in, you know, 30 years ago, it was fairly common that people would drop out and that they would it have these pyramid. pyramidal it was a shapes. brutal um, pyramid. And nowadays, most folks who go into a surgery residency will stick it through. Um, but 
when I was at, um, while I was at ECU, there was a residency program further south of there in Wilmington that had a prelim who, or they had a categorical resident, which is when you're actually committed for five years, who dropped out. And they had a prelim, but she was already designated to go somewhere else. So by luck, I right. kind of, you know, got through the grapevine, a notification that they were interested. And I had already finished a whole application season. I mean, I interviewed at like 10 other places, right, spent right. all my, you know, flying around the country trying to get interviews. A lot of jet fuel. Right. And, and then they offered me a job as a second year and I took it, like no doubt. Um, so, and it would turn out to be a really good fit because they were a high volume clinical center. I mean, they didn't have a whole lot of, I mean, they do academic work too, but they weren't like lab workers. You know, they were clinicians for the most part. And you were working. And I, that's what Doing I wanted surgery. to do, you know, right. was operate and see patients and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them. I mean, I remember sure. I, I estimate that I saw about 30 patients a day for five years for like 300 and 300 and some odd days a year for right. five years, right? Right, right. Um, so you, you add that up. Man, I mean, that's like tens of thousands. Tens of 40,000 or something probably yeah. patient encounters that sure. happened in a sort of, and I, you know, 1,600 operations. I mean, it was great. Uh, you had a great general experience. surgery experience. Yeah. You got to see everything. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now, is there anything that, any specialty that you said, well, maybe I'll spend a few more years doing cardiothoracic? Sure. Or, you know, the or, 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 you know, whatever specialty, there's so many. Yeah, I mean, there's a, been a general trend of, of specialization in surgery, and, and I definitely thought about it and discussed it. But, it, you know, I talked it over with my wife, and anyways, we were, she was not interested in following my career around for multiple moves again. Yeah, it gets old. Because you know, we'd already moved to, you know, North Carolina, and then moved to, you know, another community, and then been there for four years and um anyway so she wasn't enthralled with the idea of going somewhere else for you one have or a marketable years. skill now ben let's start <laughs> let's working. get a job and put roots let's get a job <laughs> and, uh, and, I'm, and i'm in the same sense as i, I don't really like you know, sort of traveling i'd like to stay in a place and sort of stay there for 20 years and like you know um so we talked about it and i was kind of attracted to colorectal surgery i mean it changed over time. You know, as, sure. a, as a junior resident, I was really interested in trauma because trauma has this kind of, I mean, there's this excitement to it where you're like snatching somebody from the jaws of death. You know, Oh, it's sexy. I know. Right? I, I mean, that was like, in my list when I was younger as well. I mean, it's just so cool because it, it's all, it's so many, there's these algorithms and you can understand them and they are very effective. And, you know, even if you don't have a whole lot of expertise you can get the chest tube in that saves the patient's life and you know like sure, sure. it's it, it was super exciting and i was totally enthralled with trauma when i was a junior uh, resident and then you know gradually as i got older i was like you know trauma always happens in the middle of the night oh yeah if you want to sleep it's <laughs> not it's not you know feel. and the exciting trauma is is few and far between most of the trauma you don't actually get to operate on you have to babysit patients for the orthopedic surgeons or the neurosurgeons or you know right anyway. so um i gradually got disillusioned with trauma and uh and then started getting interested in minimally invasive surgery i thought colorectal surgery was really fun i thought it would maybe do that but um you know, since i didn't do a residency or sorry, didn't do a fellowship. I chose not to go into really anything. Sure. So did you have any exciting times? This is in North Carolina you did right. a residency. It was that on a beach? Yeah. So what happens on a beach that doesn't well, happen here in the Midwest? Oh, there's all kinds of stuff that will happen on the beach. I mean, you'll see people get swimmers, get hit by a boat, which is really exciting trauma-wise because then you have a drowning patient That's and right. then you get and an injury and they usually have these multiple lacerations. They, they, they just these lacerations yeah. in, these, in these 
diagonal yeah. patterns. And um, and in that, some of those speedboats, I mean, they can really hurt people. So they can. It's amazing how bad the blunt force trauma. A lot of people be. die here at Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, You'll get uh, yeah. trauma from down there. So can you think any memorable then, moments during well, your training the there most, on the beach? The most exciting one was the night of shark bites. So the night of shark bites. Right. So this isn't a B movie. This really happened. It, it, does it totally happen? And and uh, I mean, you could probably look it up on Google because there was the the last year of my surgery residency. I think it was the summer of 2016. Um, there was just a lot of shark bites in the news all up and down the East Coast. I mean, it wasn't just North Carolina, but we were sort of the first ones because. Um, uh, there was this one night where I was on call, and I remember um, who my attending was too. And you're and the chief resident. I was so the chief resident. Yeah, so you're was, responsible. And we were at we did, we took home calls. So every time something happened, you had to drive into the hospital and then like deal with it and then go back. Um, so this one night, we had um, in the span of just a few hours, we had multiple patients who came in with shark bites. And one was this um, little girl. I mean, she was less than ten. And I mean, this this um, the story was that they were playing in the. It was towards the late evening, and it was kind of getting close to sundown. Yeah, They'd been playing in the, sound, in the sand and building sandcastles, and then they like walked into the beach to wash their like hands in the in the breakers, and um, and then the this shark got her, and it, it like took her hand off, was gone, and um, the skin was up to the elbow, and it was just this awful injury for a little girl. Oh. And um, we, I mean, from our end of things, as the 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 receiving trauma team, we were kind of like, you know, we just we took it to the OR, washed it, cleaned it up, made sure there was nothing bleeding, and um, we actually sent her to UNC's Children's Hospital um, to see if they could do anything to help with salvaging because so much of the arm was degloved. Um, right, but, right. And you know, and the hand was gone. And the hand was gone. I mean, it was in the belly yeah. of a shark somewhere. I mean, right. we have no idea where it was. And then a couple hours later, this very similar story. Some. Um, older boy, he was a teenager and he was, tra he was out of state, like traveling from, like as a vacationer on the beach, basically. Right. And a very similar story. And his left arm was gone up here. Like, oh my goodness. The and the one about that that I remember, because we obviously had to take him to the OR too, was that he had three tourniquets on his arm. So we, we, when we got to the OR and everything's all cleaned up, we take the first tourniquet off, which is one of these ones that's placed by EMS. And it has this very distinctive, it's sort of made of like, um, nylon and it has this crank on it that yeah, you can use to one. crank it down and we took it off and there's no bleeding and then we took the other one off and there's no bleeding and underneath those two tourniquets is like a leather belt uh, and we took this leather belt off and, and blood boom, hits the wall i mean it was like wall. bam like, oh, 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 holy cow so whoever it was on the beach that took their belt off saved and his life literally saved this young man's life because i mean some bystander seriously did a good job with that tourniquet and um I mean, it was incredible. Um, Boy, you'll never see that again. So shark bite. Yeah. Now, was there much hunting done in uh, North Carolina, yeah. <laughs> like Missouri? Yeah, right. So it, the, the North Carolina, the, Wilmington is sort of the, you know, it's the coast, right? And then there's yeah. a whole lot of sort of lowlands, sort of swampy stuff around there. So there's a lot of hunting communities around there. And um, so there's one that's sort of an interesting story about um, – about how powerful a compound bow really is. So the story is this this no. young boy who's probably early teens gets a compound bow and um, um, is brand new. And so he's trying it out. And one of the things he does with this is he's in his bedroom and he shoots this thing at the target on the wall. And, and it goes through the target 
and through the wall, through the wall, through the bathroom, and out the other wall into the next room over, and it hits his brother in the back of the neck. Oh! So his brother comes in with this huge broadhead, like you know, hunting arrowhead, like sticking out of the back of his neck. It's all in the meaty stuff back here. It uh, hadn't gone through to the spine. It hadn't gone through to the spine. Unfortunately, oh. fortunately, it was not deep enough in to have hit any nerves or anything like that. It was a flesh wound, essentially. But we had to take an OR to get it out because, I mean, it's all that crazy. There are some arteries there. Um, and then uh, the, the, the most exciting one, actually, was this story of a young man who was, um, he was practicing with his target arrows, with his archery stuff. And then when he got done, he's being a good kid, and he's uh, taken his stuff up to his bedroom to put it all away, and somehow slips and on the stairs and falls. Oh. And this, it's, so it's a target arrow, right? So it's shaped like a pencil, sort of a bullet tip, right? Yeah. And it has no flare to it at all. And no cutting surface. And no cutting surface. And so it, it entered his chest between his nipple and his breastbone. Okay. And it's all the way, like, poking out the back. Like oh, the skin in the back. Oh, so so he like stands up. Like so, we don't we figure this all out afterward, after the fact. Like, but because um, I mean, we don't really get this whole story in the trauma bay. Like, you kind of piece it together later. But I mean, so he stands up and and walks out into and calls ER because his parents aren't home, right? So he calls nine one one and and he's alone. He calls nine one one and EMS comes out and and he's standing in the yard waiting for them. Like standing in the yard waiting for them with this impaled. arrow impaled by an arrow that's like literally through his left chest between his breast and his nipple bone or his nipple. That sounds like and, it's around his heart. Right. So he, the EMS guys wheel him in and they've cut the fletchings off, you know, so that the, the uh, fletchings been cut off, but they've got it just sitting here and he's like on the gurney. Yeah, you don't want to pull that out because you could have a hole in something. So they, they wheel him into the trauma bay and he's just like talking to us, sitting up in the trauma bay, like, and we get we give it look him over no other injuries uh, so and we get a chest x we get a chest x ray and it's right through the cardiac silhouette right so, through his heart so we call the <sighs> cardiothoracic surgeons in, oh, and it's going to be a little while right cuz they have to get oh their, these people and um, i've actually uh, yeah i gave a presentation on this one because it was so exciting but so we got the cardiothoracic surgeons do not come. pull the arrow out <laughs> you don't pull arrow. you learn anything from this podcast yeah not no pull doubt it out. And and it was it went right through it hit it made three holes in his heart it it went through because they had to put him on pump and like open his chest and then plump basically pump all the blood out of his chest out of his heart and stop his heart from beating and use the artificial machine to perfuse his body for while they repaired everything and it went through the right ventricle okay. and through the atrial uh, ventricular septum but oh. which the atrial ventricular septum has the the tricuspid valve there sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it went right to the side of the tricuspid valve, just barely missed the valve, so it didn't cause any valve injury, and then um, went out through the back wall of the atrium and through the IVC, through the back wall of the IVC into the paraspinal bone. So he had a that's, hole in his inferior vena cava. For folks, for for people at home, IVC that's a big ass vein. We call it's, that big blue. It's an in, evil vein. In, yeah, an evil vein, <laughs> and it's because it's thin and it's hard to repair. If it, it tears, bleeds, it tears. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, all of and the thing about it, the only thing that really saves him is the fact that the you know the the injury is occluded by the shaft of the arrow the whole time. You know, so if he had been shot, it's called tamponade. It it just if it had gone all the way through and out, it would have bled. He would have bled to death. I mean, he would have totally had rapidly. Yeah, and he would probably had what's called pericardial tamponitis. He would have bled into the pericardium and squeezed the heart with his own bleeding until his heart couldn't beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
in his case, I mean, yeah. it's just miraculous, right? I mean, that he missed the coronary artery. I mean, he there's so many. This is high value real estate. There's all yeah, this yeah. important <laughs> stuff really close to each other, right? And he missed all of the really like life threatening critical things that would have killed him. And um, yeah. and I mean, it's just amazing. So, and isn't it interesting how doctors and surgeons look at this very differently? Like for us, it's kind of cool, right? It's right, I mean, it's, right? And and it doesn't mean that we we're happy this person was injured, but well, if they're going to be injured, we might as well be able to. I mean, this is the most incredible way to help been, them. Yeah, right? sure. So it's amazing. It's a whole different different worldview. Um, so you got your general surgery training, and I think you had a job in Illinois for a little bit, and you came here to boom. But so through all of this. What has really grabbed your fancy? Because there's a ge one thing that intrigued me about general surgery is you can operate on anything, you know, and, and you, you've got to know uh, human anatomy, head to toe, sure. stem to stern, um, and you'd be able to operate pretty much on anything if you have to. So what, what, where have you gravitated having this, this, this huge, this whole body to work with? What sure. has really uh, caught your interest? So I think the most... I don't know, this, is, this type of surgery that I'm really most interested in is working on her, diaphragmatic hernias. So, you know, the diaphragm is the, the muscle that separates your chest from your belly, from okay. your abdomen, right? So, and it's this kind of dome-shaped muscle that's hooked to the ribs all the way around. Um, and whenever you take a deep breath, the diaphragm muscle contracts and it actually becomes more flat. And that expands okay. the volume of the chest, right? That's how we breathe. Okay. And, um, lungs, yeah, that's how you open up your lungs. And <clears throat> so the diaphragm, it, it's... I think it's an interesting area to work on hernias specifically because the any hernias of the diaphragm don't protrude in a visible sense. You know, all other hernias that you can sort of have are typically hernias that are going to protrude outward. They you, bulge. Right, they bulge out. But so diaphragm hernias will bulge, but they bulge into the chest. So they can be an interesting like they can be extremely large in some cases and people have no idea that they're there and this is the left side once again translate for people this is on the left side where your esophagus comes down comes through your left diaphragm or yep. diaphragm into your stomach and your right. stomach's supposed to be on this side and exactly. your esophagus is supposed to be on this side yep. so that hole where the esophagus goes through can open up and expand and, and, it, and things can yep. puncture through it interesting and that's, so, that's what they call a hiatal hernia. And it's the most common of the, all the diaphragm hernias. You know? So there's like about four different kinds of diaphragm hernias that can exist, but the hiatal hernia is the most common one. So, and, so you see all these ads on TV for uh, you know, heartburn medicine. So yeah, heartburn absolutely. must be a, a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think I saw just a little while ago that there was um, one of these things where um, you can quantify how many, what's the most prescribed medication or most used medication in the entire country of America. Right. So it's like, you know, blood pressure medicine, diabetes medicine, and I think third in line are medicines for heartburn. Antacids, proton Antacids, pumps, proton, and, yeah, and pepsids, and, right, right. and all those other things, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so when does a person, when should a person see a, a general surgeon or somebody like you who specializes in this? How do you know? Well, gee, it's just heartburn. I've been eating Tums for a few years. I can live with it. How, how does one end up get coming to you? So... That's a good question. There, there's a lot of different opinions on how and when should you pursue surgical management for, for acid reflux disease. Um, and you know, I think that, that I like to slice it up a little bit apart and say that for people who have a hiatal hernia, that's a little different than just regular old acid reflux without the presence of a hiatal hernia because they have an anatomic abnormality. 
you know, there's a part of their body that's shaped wrong and it causes acid reflux. How do they know they have a hernia? That is almost the most common way it's diagnosed is on a um, EGD, a scope by done by a you know down the throat kind of gastroenterologist. So the person would typically go to a gastroenterologist. They do an upper GI scope. Yep, and a competent uh, gastroenterologist can see this exactly most of the time. You know, if they're very small hiatal hernias, sometimes they're missed, um, but because they're just difficult to see. But once they get to be of a certain size. That's pretty straightforward, and they'll see it. Even though they're in the esophagus and in the stomach, they can tell that there's a, a, a pouch there yeah. that, that should be? Most often. Most often. Okay. Technically, the most sensitive way, to the, the test that's going to most likely diagnose it is probably actually a, an x-ray swallow test called an esophagram where you drink under x-ray video. And that's a little better even than the EGD at spotting hiatal hernia. But... Um, most patients don't get that test. More often, they, they're referred to a GI doctor for their reflux, and then they'll get an EGD. So. Gotcha. So they, they would come to you that route. So they're not going to just, this person's not going to say, hey, I think I have a hernia and walk in to see you. Yeah, it's unlikely. Now, what other uh, diagnoses? Uh, I want get, to uh, get back to that in a little bit. I want to go through the, the spectrum of conditions that you would see. So somebody watching this podcast would yeah. say, hey, I should see a surgeon for this. So let's start with skin. Is there any time that they would have something on their skin where they, because you may know this, it, it takes almost a year to see some of the best dermatologists here in Columbia. Wow, really? A year or more. I saw this guy, he, I, I'm not going to say his name or anything, but he said he could see me in January, and it was a year and a half January <laughs> to see this guy. So I, I, I if you can't just run to a door, when, when would a person want to see a general surgeon for something on their skin, a lump, a bump? Sure. I mean, in general, if there's any kind of a you know, thing that you can feel that's in your skin or just under the skin um, that hurts you know, or, causes, or, or you know, has become infected, you probably should see somebody about it. And um, especially if they become infected, they probably should be removed. Okay. 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 And then if you have a wound that just won't heal, it just keeps, you know, bleeding or crusting and bleeding and crusting. That's also very suspicious. And you probably want to have that looked at and removed. And go to a um, surgeon rather than maybe, maybe you, almost all these things you see your general practitioner, but very rapidly you'd want to go to yeah. a surgeon. You, well, you want to have somebody who can take it off. And as a surgeon, we right, have right. that stuff in our office. I mean, like I've, got, I've got supplies in my clinic to do a, a you know, procedure under local anesthetic. So just numb it up and make a cut and pull off some little lump or bump and, and stitch it all up it. nice. And stitch it beautifully. Right, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like a work of art when we do these things. I and, understand. I mean, there are certain specific, like I, I, I typically avoid doing things on somebody's nose or in their around their eye because there are really careful techniques that need to be employed in those areas. You let the plastics guys. So I let the plastics guys get that. to those kind of things. There's, there's things called Mohs surgery, for example. I'm definitely not going to do that. I'm not trained in that. Um, but, you know, for a lump on your arm that looks weird or if it's like a mole that really grew fast all of a sudden or started to bleed or it looks like it's a funny shape, it's not a Go circle a anymore, surgeon. you need to see somebody, you know, whether it's your surgeon or primary doc. I mean, and the thing about seeing the surgeon is, I mean, I've got clinic appointments next week. Right, and I right, can right. see you in next week, and I'm going to see right. you and take care of it and at the same time. Right, I'm not going to string you along with multiple clinic visits and all this kind of stuff. Fantastic. Now, another surgery uh, general surgeons do quite a lot is the surgery on the gallbladder. Ah, that's the and I want to tell you that 
you probably know this about surgical history. It was the GYN surgeons that developed laparoscopes. Yeah, I know. When I started training, they had they had just evolved from tubes that had a mirror and a candle, you know, and a light sort to see in there. And I still remember doing laparoscopy surgery. Where you had to put your eye in? Oh my gosh. I've seen photos of that. And they had these things that would actually hold it to your head so it would save you a hand. You wouldn't have to hold it. It would hold the scope so you could use your hands to look through it. Wow. So I remember them actually developing the the camera, getting a camera on there and putting it on the TV. Stand up. Straight. Wow. That's amazing. That's awesome. I, I will in part take credit for the development of laparoscopy and then you <laughs> general surgeons found yeah. out you could start doing this in the tummy as well and sure. the gallbladder evolved oh, so like, yeah. and well there's the so many things one, in surgery yeah, so, like that. Oh, yeah, i mean i've got little scars on my shoulders yeah. neurosurgeon chest surgeon everybody's using scopes nowadays but but the general surgeons really took to scopes and after they figured out how to do gallbladders they figured out they got to put on three staples not one because these staples oh. started popping off there's several started, things they were yeah yeah, yeah. Enhancements. So you're you're young enough to have seen the fruits of these labors. Yeah, sure. So when you were training, you were obviously doing laparoscopy, and I want to talk about robots with you as well, which is a a, a machine that goes on a laparoscope essentially. And you started doing gallbladder. So I assume you do a, a great number of gallbladder. Yeah, I mean, it's the most common surgery performed by general surgeons in America. That's it. No, and that's number one. Number one. And I mean, we. In my practice, too. I mean, it's it's probably number one. I think it's at probably close to, if not exactly, 100 gallbladders a year that I would do in a typical, volume. you know. And, um, yeah, I mean, in that surgery, I mean, just to kind of give you, this is what I would tell a patient if I'm explaining to them how we do this, right? So well, before you do that, ahead. how does a person living their life think, find out what symptoms do they oh, have? To, sure. Hey, gee, maybe I have a gallbladder problem and maybe I should go to a surgeon like you. Okay, so there's a little variability to this. So, you know, the, the classic gallbladder symptoms are after you eat a meal, typically with some high volume of fat in that meal, you'll get crampy abdominal pains or nausea. Some people mistake it for heartburn. Sometimes the pain is described as a band across the upper abdomen. Sometimes it radiates around to the back or up to the right side or in the right shoulder. The gallbladder is on the right side of the, the mid abdomen. And there's a lot of variability to this um, as far as where the pain is located. And it can be really difficult for people to diagnose this, you know, personally. Um, and the reason that is, I, I tell people that, that I think that the internal organs, the brain doesn't have a very good map for where they're at. You know, right. you, your brain has learned where your elbow is. You know, something touches my yeah, elbow. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. seen it. I know that's there. Same so, is true in the pelvis. Yeah, right. Pelvic pain, it can go many different routes. Right. And, and it's because... You know, just like somebody might have a heart attack and have arm pain, the heart's not in the arm or the jaw, right? I mean, right, it's, right. and people know that sometimes a person having a heart attack will complain of arm pain, but like the same is true of any other organ inside of your body because your brain has never seen your heart. It doesn't really know where to put that. Right. So, right. It, and it's never seen your, your gallbladder. So you doesn't really know. So sometimes people will have gallbladder pains and they think they have acid reflux because they have pains after they eat. Mm-hmm. So they'll take a bunch of Tums and it doesn't work, you know, but that's because they, they're not treating the right problem. They, they're, they're treating acid reflux, but the acid reflux treatment doesn't work because so they have a gallbladder. So someone is, is having these <laughs> pains or difficulties after they eat yeah. and acids aren't helping, might be gallbladder. Time to see Dr. Gerber. Time to see somebody. And what they should probably get is, a, is an ultrasound of their gallbladder done. 
Um, And most patients would, um, easier to get in to see the primary doc and tell them about their symptoms. Their primary doc's going to order an ultrasound and find, oh, you've got stones or whatever. And once they find an abnormality, um, the thing about it is that the gallbladder can't be rehabilitated. You know, like yeah, right. So if you <laughs> see stones, does that mean it has to come out? Um, I would say it's probably a good idea. Um, okay, once you have stones. Once you have How about stones, sludge? It's pretty much the same thing. Sludge is just stones that are too small to like classify as an individual stone. And when does one do a high? What is a HIDA scan, Ben? So a HIDA scan, I forget what the acronym really means, but it's a it's a relatively. I like the HIDA scan because it's a super sensitive test for gallbladder function, and it's just some radioactivity or a tracer involved. There is. In that. So they give you an injection of this chemical that basically is visible on this radiograph machine, and that chemical is taken by your liver and transported into your bile system. So it fills your gallbladder up with this chemical, so they can see it on the HIDA scan, and then they give you another stimulus that turns your, makes your gallbladder contract. Because the gallbladder is supposed to store bile, right? And that's its function. So whenever you eat food, there's bile needed to digest the food. It helps break up the fat. So the gallbladder squeezes to release the stored bile. And then on the scan, they watch to see, does the gallbladder function like it should? Or is it sort of lazy? Or maybe it didn't fill up. Like it maybe just couldn't fill or something. There's something abnormal about its function. Or even does it hurt like crazy when it activates? And if there's any of those things come up, we can identify the problem with the gallbladder, basically. And it should come out. And if there's an abnormality on a high scan, you should probably have your gallbladder out. And now that you're doing so many of them, what is the complication rate? It used to be if they went bad, I don't know if it was like 3%, 5%, you know, a staple would come off and it was lethal. Sure. In your hands, a, a very experienced, modern, uh, you know, minimally invasive sure. surgeon, what would be a, a surgical complication rate from a gallbladder? It's 1%? Pretty yeah, I would say it's probably about 1%. No, not not very. I mean, minimal risk of infection, minimal risk of bleeding. Um, the common bile duct is the the feared complication of the gallbladder removal is the accidental injury to the common bile duct, which is right next to the gallbladder, and it's supposed to be about once in a thousand. Okay, um, I've never had one in my practice, but you, a lot of surgical training is is educating you about like varby dragons. You know, that's the danger place. Don't go over there. That's right. where the gallbladder, the common duct is. You want to do these special things in order to prevent accidental injury to the common bile duct. Now, are you doing gallbladders in surgery centers now outside of the hospital? Is it that routine? It is. I mean, lots of gallbladder removals are done in surgery centers now. Although at, right now we do them. You know, uh, at Boone we do them at the hospital because we don't. Boone doesn't have a surgery center, but um, gotcha. We do, but there are doctors. There doing are lots them in of surgery being centers, done. It's, and it's perfectly safe to do so. Um, you know, it's yeah, absolutely. I know. I've seen some. I've watched a number, and I've seen some pumpers. I say I'd rather be in the hospital for that one, but uh, I'm glad that's becoming routine, and it's very, very safe. Now on TV, you see a lot of things about hernia meshes and all this stuff. Oh yeah. So <clears throat> talk to me about about hernias. How, how do you? How do you know if you have, you mentioned there's a bunch of places in your body you can have a hernia, but where's the most common place you have a hernia? The reason they, they check you out when you're starting sports in high school. Sure. Tell me about those types of hernias. So the most common hernia is the inguinal hernia. And, and it's, it's in the groin area, area right? right where okay. the, it's actually, the most common hernia is specifically for men in the inguinal hernia, in, in the, the cord where the, the attachments to your testicle traverse through the muscle okay. layer of your abdominal wall. And you can actually, if you, you examine yourself really carefully, you'll be able to feel this area. There's a natural There's tunnel, a tunnel where the vas yeah. enables the, the stuff to go in and out of your yep. abdomen. Okay. And 
And that's the, because there's already a hole there. Like that's the place where a hernia is most likely to form. Natural um, weak spot, like, like the esophagus. Yes, exactly. Okay. And um, that's the most common hernia that there is in the country. And um, the next most common is um, the umbilical hernia. So let's go back to the ingu inguinal. So it's going to happen more often in men. It can happen in women. Women can get them too. Because the round ligament goes through there. Yep. A, a smaller ring. So how does the guy think? How does the guy, you're, you're walking around. You're living your life. How does the guy realize that, gee, I may have a hernia? So the, the slam the dunk. The okay. slam dunk that you know for sure there's a hernia is if you've got a bulge that's sort of in the area where the blood vessels that go down to your testicle are, are at, okay. and then you can push on it and it goes back in again. If you have a bulge uh, in your body anywhere that you can push on and it goes back in, that's a hernia, and that is nothing else other than a hernia. That's called reducible in medical yes. tissue. You can reduce it. And, and then it, that's, sometimes you feel a little squish when it goes in. You can yeah, feel a little, a little squish, a little squish right. where the fluid or sometimes bowel or something yeah. is in there. So. If you self-diagnose as a hernia, is that something you just, just make an appointment for you? Yeah, and, absolutely. I mean, and it's something and you do all the time, right? I, yeah. I mean, that's the probably about 100 a year kind of thing. It's right there neck and neck with gallbladder. The gallbladder. Um, I mean, so what's the deal with mesh, Ben? Everybody's afraid of mesh. And I had a friend. I have a friend, my dear friend, on the East Coast, and he hunted down a Shouldice specialist. Oh, yeah, in wires. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Trained in Montreal, and he's in Long Island. I don't know the guy's name. But my, my friend went to him because he didn't use a mesh. He did yeah, a Shouldice. So what's, what's up with meshes, Ben? Ooh, okay, so how much do you really want to know? I can I give want you a, a two minute. <laughs> I want a two-minute podcast synopsis. You could say, hey, they're fine. Let your surgeon make up their money. You make the decision for you and do the best yeah, in sure. their judgment. Or, gee, we should avoid it completely? Or is there something in the middle? So there is good reason why most surgeons use mesh. And, okay. and I would say that it's probably considered standard of care by most surgeons so across the country. They're not bought off by the device companies. Right. They're not sending them to Hawaii right. and, 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 you know, and, do it and, and bribing and, them to do this. It's the surgeon's decision and, that this is in the best interest of the patient, exactly. right? And it's, okay. it's, it's not just... Like the surgeon just decides. It's that there's good data that shows that this okay. is true. I mean, there's actually studies that follow this along quite well. And um, I mean, the real history that I think that it's brief that's going to be of useful is that you know people have been fixing hernias, doing surgery for hundreds of years, literally since the 1800s. And for a long time, the only available technique was stitching stuff. And there's a whole bunch of variations on how to stitch up a hernia with sutures, right? And the reason there's a bunch of variations is because none of them are really perfect. They all okay. have problems. And then the key problem that seems to have plagued hernia repair surgery for most of that history has been the reoccurrence of the hernia. Okay. So, you know, you get surgery and then five years later, the hernias come back. Comes back. Okay. So because of that, there has been a general perception that, you know, don't get a surgery unless you really need it because it's so, you know, the hernia might reoccur and the hernia is going to come back again. So... That really changed dramatically when this man named Lichtenstein published his study with a thousand patients for five years of follow-up and zero reoccurrences in that time. And, and what was Lichtenstein's <clears throat> technique? And his, his technique was to use mesh. So he okay. did open inguinal hernia repair surgery with a piece of mesh material. And, you know, for, at first everybody was blamed back, ah, whatever, you know, he's lying. You know, that's not, nobody can do that. And, right. um, and then others learned his technique and very nearly produced the same level of quality. 
So I mean, the, the point is that when it comes in modern surgical technique, when performed properly, either laparoscopically or with open inguinal hernia repair using mesh, the chance of a hernia reoccurrence is, should be around 1%, you know, for the rest of your life. So, so why did mesh get such a bad name? Well, oh, oh, bad rap. What's so, going on? So this, all this stuff happened like in the late eighties when Lichtenstein is publishing these things. So then, then basically, you know, like what kind of mesh do you use? Right. Some lots of different kinds were tried for some time. You know, there was polypropylene mesh has been around since the beginning. There was Gore-Tex mesh was used for a while. There was polyethylene mesh is used for a while. Um, and they put them in different places. Sometimes they were naked inside the, the, the wall of the abdomen, right? Right there. Sure. Right? And I saw you do a case just the other day where your mesh was underneath that first layer. It was kind of hidden exactly. from the bowels so it wouldn't make adhesion. That's exactly right. So and, and over time, and we discovered that like, you know, Gore-Tex mesh is really no longer used because it doesn't grow in and it's prone for infection. Polyethylene ah. mesh loses strength over time. Ah. And it will crack and break and create jagged edges, which might cut into things. You know, ah. so you know when you talk about all these different sorts of things that where there are class action lawsuits, some of them are class action lawsuits for using mesh in places where it really wasn't a good idea, like for bladder slings. For Old, example. right, right, yeah, yeah. In my you know, world, that was a big, that was and, a big controversy. And then there was a, you know, there's, I forget what it was called, duo mesh. I forget now. Um, but there were some kinds, or no, Kugel mesh. There was one called Kugel mesh that was a mesh that was recalled because it had a polyethylene ring inside that would crack and could spear something. So several of these, you know, types of meshes are, are specific, you know, devices, which subsequently, as we learned after years of use, that they weren't really as good as we So modern were. meshes are better, made of better materials. Right. I mean, and not to say that polypropylene is some new thing. It's been around since the beginning, but it's the only one that's proven the test of time. Like all of the others have been essentially eliminated over the decades by identifying some sort of weaknesses with their design. And now almost all hernia repair is done with polypropylene mesh. So in, in general, <clears throat> if a patient is, gone, is going to a competent surgeon like you, and the surgeon suggests, I can fix it with high likelihood of reliability, and it happens to involve a mesh, they shouldn't freak out or be too worried. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. actually the standard of care right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. And meshes, that's great to hear. I mean, people will occasionally have a problem with mesh, just like a person might occasionally have a problem with a knee replacement, where their knee replacement sure. gets infected five years later because of, you know, like, whatever. And mesh can get infected, you know, years later. Yeah. And I've seen that happen a few times. And it's terrible when it happens, but you have to take it out, just like the person who has an infected joint replacement occasionally yeah. gets bad luck. And it just right. somehow their, you know, joint replacement gets contaminated with bacteria. Uh, and then you, you have to remove it and then deal with the problem afterward. Right. Um, but that's not necessarily because the mesh is somehow evil. It's just that whenever there's a foreign body implanted in a human, um, there is some slim possibility it could get contaminated with bacteria, and then that will create an infection that won't be easily treated, so it has to be removed. Okay. Another common bowel issue where someone might see a general surgeon is the appendix. Oh, yeah, sure. So are you of the... the the appendix is this little thing that hangs off. Yeah, it's the, about the size of a pencil. About the size of a pencil. It's called vermiforms. It's yep. the shape of a worm. And it's right in the lower quadrant here. It's very close to pelvic organs where I, uh, yep. I operate. And it's where the small bowel attaches to the large bowel. Yep. It may Same. provide bacteria. It may seed digested food as it goes to the colon. And 
it may have a role, but pretty much is vestigial. I think everybody agrees. You don't need an appendix. You can live a perfectly normal you life. You can live fine without <laughs> an appendix. So how does one know if they've got an infector or inflamed or an appendicitis? How does somebody know? So the, the history for that typically is um, gradually increasing abdominal pain. So this is an interesting little bit that talks about our thing we earlier about pain and how pain inside the abdomen changes or, or is hard to locate. So most people who have appendicitis first start with peri-umbilical pain, sort of poorly distinctive. Around located. the belly button. Sort of around the belly button. It's sort of vaguely something hurts or aches or something is sore around my belly button. And then after some time passes, sometimes a couple days, they have specific pain located in the right lower quadrant. And what's happening here is the difference in the way the pain sensations are being activated. So the first pains are typically that the intestine itself is swollen, inflamed, and in pain. And as the inflammation progresses to produce inflammation of the adjacent peritoneum and the abdominal wall, the brain knows much more carefully where those are located. Uh, that <clears throat> so that's where right. the pain gets located in the right lower quadrant more precisely. So oftentimes people with intestinal pains, it's sort of hard to locate where they are. When, you know, yeah. The gallbladder is like that. So the, you know, sometimes the, the, the rest of the, like the colon might be like that, where it's sort of uh, something hurts kind of over here somewhere, but not really telling, be able to tell where. But the appendicitis will usually eventually locate in the right lower quadrant. Um, and in, as a surgeon, almost every time I see a patient, it's because they've been to the emergency department for pain, and then they get a CAT scan, and the CAT scan is the modern you know, standard of care to confirm the diagnosis. If you, if you don't have appendicitis on CAT scan, you're probably not going to need an appendectomy. So when a, a CAT scans have gotten so good. I know they've gotten quick. They're so much faster than they used to so be. So much faster than they used to be. That a, a trained radiologist can, can reliably diagnose appendicitis Absolutely. with a CAT scan? Absolutely. Because I remember when, once again, when I trained, it was, well, maybe we have a, some thickening of the fat or maybe sure. some retroperitoneal. It was always yeah. kind of a maybe. But with, with modern CAT scans, yeah, the diagnosis is very, very with good. confidence. Huh? Very, very good, yes. So you see a swollen appendix. You slay it, that organ. You're gonna slay. You're gonna you're gonna slay that dragon. You're gonna yeah. fix that problem. And you can do that usually with a telescope yeah. called a laparoscope yeah. nowadays. We do it laparoscopic, like 99 percent of the time. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I take out a lot of appendices myself because it's involved with endometriosis right, sure. and the appendix. For some reason, like, the tip of the appendix can grow almost every bizarre tumor you can imagine. It is a weird. Carson, <laughs> it's weird. Just yeah. the tip likes to do neuromas, carcinoids. You probably see other, yeah. and sometimes a cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Appendiceal cancer is evil. It's a terrible uh, yeah, cancer. Yeah, it's a bad thing. It's one of, it has a horrible prognosis because it's usually diagnosed late. Um, yeah. So the days of making what's called a McBurney incision, a little mini yeah. laparotomy down here, those are over. over. Now, how, how often do you get the appendix before it bursts? In modern America, almost always. I mean, you will occasionally, I mean, I would say maybe 5% of the time we'll have a patient who shows up with a ruptured appendix and an abscess or something. So you haven't have you treated many Amish? The Amish stay at home <laughs> until they're almost dead because they're so tough, and you'll uh, see you'll see delayed diagnoses in that population. I haven't not since I've come here. Yeah, would just wait. Yeah, they're t they're 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 tough folks, and uh, I see women in, in in my field of pelvic surgery who, as a tough kid, had a ruptured appendix and just curled up in the corner somewhere and yeah, sure. and and lived. And lived, 
And then they come to me 10, 15 years later, they're unable to have babies, and I get wow. in there. And it's just one massive, the body did what it's supposed to do. Yeah. It walled it off, it scarred it down. Yeah, sure. their, their feisty, strong immune system walled it off, and they lived, but it fried their fallopian tubes and their yeah. reproductive organs. Uh, I've seen this more than once. Um, so you can welcome yeah. to the Midwest. You'll see some, uh, some interesting you, things. It makes me think of how, like, if you're in Africa, you know, and you have ruptured appendicitis, it's about a 25% mortality. Oh, so yeah. that means there's 75% of people are going to survive somehow. They're going to survive somehow. And, you know, like, how does that happen? I mean, the body walls it off somehow and controls right. that infection. Eventually, you know, right. stops it. But. Or scar tissue is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, so you're going to trade shark bites for, uh, <laughs> for, for a delayed yeah. diagnosis here. Fantastic. Um, something I, I, I want our, our, our listeners to, to know is something that really uh, fascinated me when I first heard it. This was as a medical student during my, during my surgical residence, during my surgical rotation. And one of the residents asked me, what percentage of appendices, appendixes is, is improper, of these appendices that, that are taken out in a hospital over here, what percentage should be normal? Right? Isn't this great? And, and, and as a, you know, you'd think, well, they should all be normal. Why are you taking out any normal appendices? They should all be diseased, right? Yeah. They should all be diseased, right? But that's not the case. Can you explain okay, this so, phenomenon so the, you're to showing our listeners? You're showing your age a little bit. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. University of Michigan, 83. Yeah. All right. So, so back in, this is connected to your problem about CT scans and your, your comment about how they right. used to be terrible. Right. Because it used to take like an hour or two hours to get a CAT scan because the patient would be in the CAT scanner for a long time. The images were kind of poor quality anyway. They move around. And, the slices were thicker. Right. right. So um, in the era in which CT scan was not readily available and you were relying upon laboratory tests and physical White exam count, and history right. Right, to make a diagnosis of appendicitis, it was generally accepted that around 10 or 20% of the time when you took out an appendix, it would turn out to be a normal appendix. And it would be a little worse for females than males because sometimes they would have ovary pain, ovary pains, would fool, you. Would fool you and you would go in and try to take out and it would be some other diagnosis. But the, the concept there was that, that if you were not aggressive at surgically managing these complaints that you would be missing appendicitis some That's of the time. That's what I want people to understand. So, you're afraid of missing it. Right. And sending somebody out, say, oh, you're fine, and when they, they go out in the parking lot and, and they die, die in the parking right. lot because you missed it. So in the modern era where we have high-resolution CT scans... <laughs> Red Flintstone across the table. It's from extremely <laughs> unusual to take out a normal appendix. I would say it's probably like less than 5% of the appendix I'm going to take out is going to be a normal appendix. Um, so you so know. just I want everybody to understand that in medicine, especially in surgery, sometimes you, like you take off a mole, and it's just a mole. Right, right? sure. But now you know it's not a cancer, and you didn't miss it. Right. right? So there's, there's these inherent trade-offs, and although our work is informed by science, it's not precise and exactly scientific right, as we do it. And I mean, oftentimes I'll see a, a person who has a gastrointestinal complaints that are sort of 
hard to diagnose. Well, I'm nauseous sometimes, or I kind of have these pains sometimes, but then I've been trying these anti-acid medicines. They don't really help. And then, you know, we get a HIDA scan. It's kind of on the borderline. Is right. it wrong or it's not? It's not black and white It's not black and white. Right, and you think, uh, well, you know, normal for ejection fractions, 30%, and you were 30%, but that's the bottom edge of the normal range. Right. Your gallbladder wall was a little thickened, but there were no stones on the ultrasound. Right. Maybe they just didn't see them. Maybe they're there. I don't know. So sometimes we will offer that patient a gallbladder removal just to sort of clarify the picture because it's, you know, it's so muddy right now. We're not really sure. And if we took the gallbladder out of the picture, then at least we know it's not that. And you we know? do that with pelvic pain. We'll take, if somebody, if a woman has bad endometriosis, we'll take the appendix. 25% of the time it has an endometriosis as well. But we take it out. So in the future, if you have severe pain, we know it's not an appendicitis. Right. Yeah. So, so those are the big, the, the common things that a person would see a general surgeon for. So take me through, I already told you that we GYNs uh, develop laparoscopy in the beginning, but you, you all, the general surgeons, have taken it and run with it and have now added on a new feature called a robot. So I would love to take credit for that, but it's not actually the general surgeons who are responsible for this. So interestingly, little history of the urologist. Almost talk to me. So so the the story is um, if you really talk to the people at Intuitive that know the history, Intuitive got off the ground starting with cardiothoracic surgery. That's the company that That's makes the, company the Da Vinci robot. That makes the Da Vinci robot. So they I should have clarified that, but um, they they developed this. So what the Da Vinci robot is essentially if, for our listeners is this. It's this machine that has a bunch of specific enhancements onto it, which allow it to sort of be the next generation of laparoscopy surgery. Okay. And so it's still a telescope in the belly. It's, it's still small yeah. holes, but it has these three or four arms. Right. So there's several features. I kind of described them. I mean, one is that the camera it uses is substantially better than the traditional camera for regular laparoscopy. It has a binocular view. So there's two cameras in there. And when, when the surgeon uses the, the console, you sort of sit your head into this. So you sort of, you have a depth perception because with uh -huh. a one camera view, you will have a limited ability for depth perception. Yeah, that's my word. <clears throat> and the reason that that's really important is when it comes to things like sewing and threading needles, that small difference in depth perception becomes really much different with respect to how long it is and how easy it is to accomplish those little tasks like threading oh. a needle or sewing. Um, and then the other thing that the camera does is it actually magnifies the view. So it's like working with a microscope. I mean, everything is three times larger than it is in life. And then <clears throat> associated with that, the, the instruments that go in have additional range of motion. So your standard laparoscopic instruments can pinch and they can yeah. rotate, but they sort of wave around. And it reminds me of like the arms on that like robot from Lost in Space. Well, yeah, 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 what yeah, danger, yeah. Will Robinson? Yeah, right, right. We call them sticks. Right. right. I operate with sticks. They're long black sticks. They have things on the that very pinch end. pinch and they it. can wave around. But so you say, so once again, I want other people to understand that once you dock this robot. We, yes, we attach the put robot. In the, you put in the telescopes. You've actually done the surgery. You've actually done some actual hands-on right, surgery. Right, we've attached everything. You then sit over here yes. in something called a console. And the console allows me to control this. Essentially, it's a little mechanical hand. It has almost wow. the same range of motion as what I can do with my hand. So your and wrists so can do this, and, and that's translated exactly. to the wrists inside, inside yeah. the and, Except that it's like, you know, it's this big, right. right? So instead of having a hole for my hand to fit in, it's a little hole for a little mechanical hand to fit in that I get to control. And it allows me to sew. And since it's so tiny, it also allows – the other thing that this thing does is um, for, for surgeons as – 
we grow older, everybody has a certain amount of what's called physiologic tremor. You know, sure. So if you hold like a yardstick and you try to hold it really straight, it'll wiggle in the air. Yeah, yeah. The, the robot cancels your physiologic tremor. And it will. Um, it also has a scaled movement. So if I move my fingers three inches, the instrument inside will move some fraction of that. So it allows me this very precise movements. And I have all the same range of motions that my real hands do, right? So then I can do things where I can like hold my elbow up like this and box out something that's in my field of view. Right. And I can still sew right here. You know, so it allows me to do all kinds of extra things with my hands and arms. And there's a, a tool that allows me to use a third arm that I can rotate back and forth as to which arm I want to use there. And um, so anyway, there's all of these enhancements together essentially create this really useful tool for doing things that are, are in, especially in narrow little places. So when, when the company that created this, Intuitive Surgical, um, first got started, they got started working with cardiothoracic surgery. So they were doing heart valves um, with these tiny little holes and um, working inside the pericardium. Um, and their company you know, dealt with a lot of the engineering problems early on working with cardiothoracic surgery. Uh, but their surgical volumes were never very high, and they were sort of dying as a company. Huh. So urology saved Intuitive from death by because some guy in Europe somewhere, I forget, I think it was in Germany, um, did the first robotic prostatectomy. And the thing about robotic prostatectomy is that, um, you know, as a prostate surgery, it's, again, it's a very small little place to get yeah, to. In the male pelvis place. is yeah, narrow yeah. with bone all around, and it's very far in. So laparoscopic instruments are very hard to use down here. It's very hard to get, like, if you want to sew laparoscopically, you have to get your hands out at about 30 to 45 degree angle in order to sew. So once you start getting your fingers really close in, it's extremely difficult to get the loops necessary to sew. So sewing the ureter back together again for a prostatectomy with laparoscopically is was infamously difficult and very few right. people had the skill necessary to do it. do it but with the robot where you've got these little tiny hands and extra range of motion and you can place that <clears> stitch 90 degrees could, perfectly square you could, to the radius exactly. yeah you could do very good quality work and i mean i guess the first robotic prostatectomy took like nine hours or something i mean they were just making uh, yeah, it up yeah, yeah. as they went along right because sure. they'd never done this before and um after urology sort of saved the robot um, general surgery was one of the next ones that sort of came on board. And um, the thing about general surgery that was a bit of a challenge was that the, that at the time, the robot had fairly limited range of motion in the sense that the, once you positioned it, you could only operate in a zone that was about this big. Okay. You know, because it, it couldn't swing very far out of the side to side. Like the, the field of surgery it could use to perform its work was fairly limited. And then as the robot company advanced, they added on new generations of their technology so that it increased range of motion. And, and then it became possible for surgeons to do things like hernias, which are bigger sometimes, and for us sure. to do um, you know, things like colon surgeries, which were usually require a larger field because you have to remove a big section and you have to loosen up an area to bring it down. So colorectal surgery was one of the next ones that really got on board with doing, um, when, when the newer generations of robot came into existence, colorectal surgery got on board. Um, because they could do their surgeries. And, and what it allowed in the, the best series is showed that for patients who had laparoscopic surgery, even with highly skilled laparoscopic centers, about 10 or 15% of those surgeries would convert to open surgery because there was something particularly difficult about it. It was maybe really inflamed or the tumor was invaded somewhere or the 
patient was really heavy or something where they couldn't right. get it done safely laparoscopically, they'd go open. It's called converting. Converting to an open to surgery. An open case. So, the, and the key thing about that is when you go open, then the, the patient has a much bigger wound. There's risk profile for wound infection or for hernia or for, you know, all kinds of complications gets worse with the larger wound. So the benefits of minimally invasive surgery are enjoyed by more patients with robotics because at the high volume robotic colorectal centers, their conversion rate to open is like less than 5%. So then far more patients get to enjoy the benefits of minimally invasive surgery, essentially. And even if their tumor is bigger or their disease is more inflamed or whatever. <clears throat> and that's kind of where robots really sort of shown a, a delta of quality um, is in colorectal surgery. So it's not just fancy. It's like in my field, also lasers were real big. Oh, we can do yeah, a sure. laser. And everybody wanted to have a laser. My and and, and in, in the vast majority of cases, it added no benefit. It added a cost. It, it was a hassle factor, and it really added nothing other than uh, for fancy marketing. Right. So. In your training, you got trained in laparoscopy, and you had robot tr training had in your residency. A little bit, yeah. So clearly you took to it. Yes, I did. No, I've sat down with robots at, at shows and whatnot. I bet you I could be real good for good at it. Probably. It's but I, I just Yeah, I, I just don't have time for it. I, what I do, I'm doing with the sticks. But you got the opportunity to train as a younger man and have the robot at your access. And now... You were able to treat these hernias. This is something you're, if you if you go on yeah. the internet, Ben has some uh, some videos through Boone Hospital where you talk about a bit, yeah. rightfully talk about you know what do you like you know what is your passion, um, and I, I guess the thing that you have the most experience with are these hiatal hernias, Absolutely. or these yes. hernias around the stomach and the esophagus, and you can approach these now with a robot as well. Is that yeah. right? Absolutely. And it's changed. How's the robot changed the, this It's field? huge. I mean, because if you go back about not even maybe 10 years or so, I mean, typically these patients, uh, laparoscopic surgery was available for this. But for particularly large hernias, it was, it was difficult, very difficult, and kind of dangerous in certain cases. Because these hernias, when they protrude through the diaphragm into the chest, the chest is, is sort of... You know, it's a dangerous place. There's the heart in there. There's the lung yeah. in there. People you know, don't these realize are... that esophageal surgery is sometimes is frequently done by the cardiothoracic right. guys. Absolutely, gals. it is. Yeah, uh, uh, oftentimes, not always, but but a lot of times they're done by cardiothoracic or thoracic. And you know, the heart is you, you don't want to get into bleeding with the heart. <laughs> no, <I hear laughs> not okay, I, I'm with you on that one. Right, <clears throat> and then I mean, also this this again, it's one of these places that like we talked about earlier, it's kind of high value real estate because. The, the hiatus has essentially directly behind the esophagus as it traverses through the diaphragm is the aorta. And then just uh. like, like an inch or two below the diaphragm and sometimes in the muscles of the diaphragm is what's called the celiac axis. So it's this big blood vessel that feeds all of the front of the gastrointestinal tract. So the small oh. bowel, the liver, this pancreas, the spleen, the stomach, all receive their blood flow from this main nexus of blood vessels that comes out of the aorta just below the diaphragm. So, oh. you know, if you're kind of not careful enough, you could easily cause accidental injury to these really important structures nearby. And there's the most commonly injured structure in a hiatal hernia surgery is the vagus nerve, which is, oh. there's two of them, and they are attached to this. They carry along the edge of the esophagus and go to provide nerve supply to the stomach and all the intestines. Right. And 
especially in the context of very large hiatal hernias, their position is sometimes pushed in different weird directions and they're not located where they should be. So the visualization of the camera with the magnified view and the dexterity of the robotic hands allows me to be able to far more reliably locate and preserve those structures than what would be available with standard laparoscopy. Um, so, you know, I can, and, and the other thing that I, is that I've done enough of them with, with really great, you know, outcomes. It, I basically do this as an outpatient now. I mean, people don't even stay in the hospital. Um, they go home, you know, and it used to be three wonderful. days in the hospital, right? Wow. Um, so, you know, even I mean, just last week, I think I had three patients last Monday, and two of them were ladies over the age of 80, and they went home. Wow. Yeah. That's tremendous, Ben. Are there any other surgeries you do with the robot that have been, you know, that have benefited uh, in, in such a dramatic way? Is it, with hernias also do you do with the robot? Or? I do. I sort of pick and choose which patients um, are going to really benefit from the I robot. Saw, <clears throat> I saw you doing one uh, the other week where it was just a laparoscope and he seemed to be doing just fine. Yeah. So, and it's, it's a matter of, you know, one of the things is that I don't have access to the robot whenever I want it. So I can't just do, choose to do it all the time. So if I have a patient who needs a surgery on a timeline that's not going to work for access to the robot, then we're going to have to use whatever techniques we have available for that. Sure. Um, and, but in general, I think that the robot really is of benefit because it, it allows a couple of different things for laparoscopic repair of hernia. So this kind of gets a little bit into the details of how is a hernia repaired. So, you know, a hernia as a whole with stuff protruding through, right? Okay. So when you're going to repair a hernia, the first thing you need to do is pull the stuff back in that belongs inside, okay? And then you can really carefully see the hole. And for standard laparoscopic approach, it's very difficult to actually close the hole because getting ang the angles of stitching through and then you know putting sutures in and pulling and yanking and against the the insufflation holds the you know when you're yeah. feeling it, it it fights you we use pressure <clears throat> let me explain this we use pressurized gas always carbon dioxide to open the abdomen right it gives us room to work like, so you're not instruments so don't you're poke making your hernia work. work so it essentially it makes it right. out yeah. so and if with typical straight stick instruments it's possible i mean some people can do it but it's not easy and, and then you, you also, there's a, a hole, so you, the muscle layer has to be pulled more than it naturally its elasticity would allow. So it takes a lot of force to pull these muscles closed and to close the hole. So there's all these guidelines about how to do good quality laparoscopic hernia repair where you don't close the hole, but you have at least a certain amount of overlay onto muscle tissue. You know, so that the normal, the mesh has to be bigger than the hole. So if the hole is like two inches in diameter, you have to have a mesh that's got at least three inches of overlap all around. Wow. <clears throat> and then you, st you tack the bejesus out of it so it stays in position and it doesn't slip. Okay, and so that's the, the typical laparoscopic approach okay, for a hernia repair. Now with the robot, because I have more, it's, the instruments are a little stronger. It's also because the instruments move in other ways, it allows me to sew the defect of the muscle layer closed before I put the patch up. So, I mean, this sort of, I think of it as being this kind of thing where, you know, if you had like a, a, whole, a, a seam in your shirt that was ripped and, and you're going to fix that by ironing on a patch, wouldn't it work better if you sewed the seam first and then ironed the patch on? Yeah. Wouldn't it just be a better quality closure? Right. 
right? You know, and that's what the robot allows you to do is to actually sew the hole closed and then also place the patch on over the top of it, uh, actually underneath on the inside. Um, <clears throat> and and I, that provides, in my opinion, a better quality. And I feel like it also has this side effect of having less pain for the patients afterward. And it's the, I think the pain issue is revolves around sort of this biomechanics of how this works. So if you've got a hole right. and there's a patch on it, every time you sneeze, the patch tries to bunch up through the hole, right? Ah. So all the little tacks are pulled sideways. Every time you cough, every time you sneeze, every time you bend over to tie your shoes, the Pulls tacks the are being pulled a little bit to the side because the mesh is trying to bunch up out the hole. So if you close the hole, that doesn't happen. And the patients, I think they, they suffer less pain as a consequence. Um, and it just, to me, it makes sense. It's a biomechanics of how does the, the thing close and, and fit? How do the pieces fit together? Um, and that's, that's one of those things where, so for most instances where I've got a, a hernia of the abdominal wall that's not going to be a slam dunk, easy little cut in the front, you know, because if it's a tiny umbilical hernia, it's usually very straightforward to just put in a mesh patch underneath and close over. But if it's a, maybe a, a reoccurrence or it's a patient who has a big defect or a person who um, might have a lot of high risk for a wound infection for some reason, maybe diabetic or a smoker or something like this, um, then oftentimes I'll do those with the robot because I can avoid some of those other risks and provide a better quality repair than what I could do laparoscopically. That's tremendous. It's always great to see the, the field, the various fields of medicine all uh, advancing. And uh, in, in future podcasts, we're going to talk about many different fields of medicine and the recent advances, which are just so exciting. Now, is there anything in the field of general surgery that I haven't really covered that you'd like to talk about today? Anything uh, new and exciting or a new thing that you're doing or sure. uh, any kind of news? Is there something that here we are in the, in the end of uh, 2022? Yeah, I mean, there's one of the things that I'm doing right now is um, we, we kind of talked a little bit about this work of hiatal hernia repair and this sort of stuff in the, a little bit ago. Um, so there's been a, a long history of how do you surgically manage acid reflux disease and how do you fix hiatal hernias. Um, and uh, for a very long time, the, the sort of standard of care was this thing called the Nissen fund application, right, which is a surgery that's been around since the 60s. Um, and it, it entails a procedure where you take a part of the stomach called the fundus, and you sort of loosen it up so that it's floppy, and then you use the muscle of the stomach to stitch it around the esophagus. So you just, just, just wrap it around yeah. the esophagus, take the upper part, wrap it around, exactly. tighten yes. it up. And that's supposed to basically use all this extra muscle tissue to sort of bolster the muscle function of the lower esophagus, right? So that's okay. the, the concept of how it functions. Um, and it, it's, it's been around a very long time. And the key, there's, there are a couple of key disadvantages associated with that. One is that it's typically too good. Most people can't get anything uh, to go up anymore. You know, so you, people can't burp or vomit anymore. Uh, and it, it works really good. No more acid reflux, right? So no more acid coming up your throat. But you, you kind of get a little bloaty or a little gassy as a consequence because they, gotcha. they can't get any burps can't out. burp. Um, and the other thing is that if you follow patients for a really long time, if they have a hiatal hernia and they get one of these techniques applied, they have a relatively high risk of reoccurrence, just like we had previously talked about with like inguinal hernia surgery and the, the enhancement that mesh provided to reduce the chance of hernia recurrence. Right. Um, there, there has been this issue for 
acid reflux surgeries that there's a relatively high rate of hernia reoccurrence after surgery and these other side effects with bloating and stuff. Um, so people for a number of years have been trying to come up with variations and innovate new techniques to try and create new things that might be better than the Nissen. Okay. Um, and one of the things that's kind of been around now for some time, I think they got, finally got FDA approval in 2007. So they've, and then they, um, did their first five-year follow-up in 2012. So they've been on the market for more than 10 years now. It's this device called Lynx. So Lynx is a little, essentially it's a little necklace of magnetic beads where each magnet kind of aims at the next one around the circle. Huh. And its intent is that it sort of squeezes the esophagus a little bit and helps bolster the esophagus instead of using the stomach wrap method. Okay. Huh. And the, the key, you know, the magnetic attraction is supposed to be pretty wimpy so that when you swallow, it's... They push open, and then all the, the food can come down, but the normal digestive movements of the stomach are not supposed to be potent enough to let acid come up the wrong way. While it, you know, Just right. It's supposed to be somewhere Goldie between. Locks. Exactly, right? right? And that's right, the idea. Right. <clears throat> and they, they've, the guys who built this thing um, you know, designed it to be like last a lifetime, essentially, made out of titanium and all this kind of fancy stuff. Right, it has right. little neodymium magnets in there. Um, and... As far as acid reflux control has been shown, it's pretty effective. It does about as good a job, you know, it's, as any of the other techniques. Um, long term, they actually have long term follow up studies now with more than ten years of follow up showing that it continues to work for a long time. Uh, and I think this may be new uh, as far as like the new big thing on the horizon. It's been poor uptake with insurance companies. You know, it's an implant. Implants right, are expensive. Right, right. Insurance right? doesn't want to pay for anything. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of reasons for, for that. And they've also not been able to do the randomized control trial where half the patients uh, got the traditional right, surgery and half right. the patients got the implant because, like, I mean, seriously, who's going to sign up for that right. trial? <clears throat> right. um, so they haven't been able to demonstrate superiority over the traditional surgery. Um, now, I think that they're, the company is starting to work in the next direction because where they probably have demonstrated superiority is in reducing the likelihood of reoccurrence long term. Because there have been a number of studies done now that have followed patients long-term, and they found that the chance of a hiatal hernia reoccurring, if you have a hiatal hernia surgery and this device used, you know, so the patient gets a hiatal hernia and a device rather than a hiatal hernia and a wrap, okay. their likelihood of reoccurrence is somewhere around 5%. Whereas the traditional wrap patients, depending on which study you reference, it's like 25 30 50%. So that's a substantial improvement in quality. And you should be able um, to show that difference with a moderately sized study. Absolutely. So that's in the works apparently, but um, you know, that's probably where I think the next thing will happen as far as acid reflux surgery is concerned. Very yeah. interesting. It's nice to know. And you can tell that I didn't have you prepare for anything, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with another question okay. out of the blue. I know you said you don't do much thyroid surgery. But I, I have perceived that there's been a change. And I see a lot of thyroid because thyroid's a hormone and hormones affect fertility. And I'm a reproductive endocrinologist, yeah. so I, I deal with a lot of thyroid. And I've seen a change in practice pattern with thyroid nodules. It's not uncommon to feel a little nodule in a thyroid. It's always a woman in my case. Uh, but she's doing great. All her labs are normal, but there's this little nodule. And I've seen over the years that we used to send them to a doctor and they'd put needles in there and try to biopsy it and do sure. all this stuff and ultrasounds and radioactive scans and all that kind of stuff. But I'm seeing that there's much less 
people seem to be more comfortable just observing them over time or whatnot. Can you tell me what's the what's going on with thyroid nodules? Because I think that still falls in general surgery, right? I mean, it, it's one of those sorts of things you get trained on in general surgery, and we're required to have a certain number of thyroid cases as part of our graduation, that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I did learn a whole lot about thyroid while I was in training, and I don't have, I haven't kept up on a lot of it. So my I'm probably a few years behind okay. on whatever the most recent guidelines are. But my understanding is that there are ultrasound findings which are used to risk stratify in a thyroid nodule. And then any thyroid nodules that meet certain guidelines based on their size and what they look like under ultrasound, when they meet certain criterion, then they will be biopsied. And then the biopsy will guide whether or not that's a malignant nodule or a benign nodule. Okay. okay. So, you know, once it, they, if they're changing over time or if there are these other abnormalities with respect to the, how they look like or size criterion, and if they're found to have anything, you know, like if there's other, if there's other nearby enlarged lymph nodes, for example, those are always biopsied that suggest metastasis into a lymph node. So there's several specific findings on ultrasound, which would lead towards biopsy. And then if any malignancy is found on biopsy, then it goes to surgery for removal. And if, um, and otherwise it's not typically recommended for surgery in a sort of prophylactic sense. So as ultrasound has gotten better, like CAT <clears throat> scans have gotten better, that that's, maybe that's the change in management right. I'm seeing here. And the, yeah, a lot, lot, a lot less people are getting thyroidectomies um, probably right. than what there used to be because we're sort of discovering that you, know, you, you can, because thyroid cancer overall has a pretty good prognosis compared to some other kinds of cancer. So, you know, waiting a few months for a follow-up ultrasound isn't going to substantially impair your, the, like, outcome for that patient, right? Their okay. prognosis isn't going to be wounded by having got a repeat ultrasound in a few months. Um, so, yeah, I think in, we're doing less thyroidectomies because we're doing more surveillance of lesions that are not cancer. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you, Ben. Thank you. What a Appreciate pleasure it. having you, it's Ben. It's a pleasure. Have you a great invited. day. Thank you. You too.